praising Him. And are we thankful for the worship team as they uh, get us up and they get us moving? Isn't, a, isn't this a morning where we need a little bit of that? Uh, let's get these bodies a moving to warm them up, and we needed that through that. And then think about those words, this is my story, this is my song. You see, over the coming weeks, we're going to take a lot of time talking about identity. And now, I mean, I'm thankful that I really didn't look at the weather report to see how I might build this intro out, because otherwise you'd be hearing about my identity as a Minnesotan, and all the stories about how this, oh, this is nothing. Let me talk to you about what life was like up in Minnesota. I mean, it was this temperature for six months long, with snow eight foot deep, and we walked up to school in it and back uphill both ways. Okay, those are stories of identity, aren't they? Or at least they're stories we make up about ourselves. Well, I've got a different part that I want to uh, bring back, and so I'm going to start sharing a little bit of my testimony with you, and a piece of that is going to go back to some stories that you've heard a little bit about in the past, and that's we're going to talk a little bit about the Navy. I know that I've talked about it, but let let me let you behind the curtain of the early years. So really... As I approached and got out of college, I felt there was really no question in my own mind that I was going to be able to get into the submarine program because obviously they were the ones that were chasing after me. They asked me to apply for the program. So certainly that was a foregone conclusion even before I'd met Kathy, even before we were engaged to be married, all the way through. And then while I was in my training pipeline, I'd only been in the Navy for about a year at this point, and they were looking for someone to stay at the training site as an instructor. And so they approached me about that. And so I was like, well, yeah, I think they've probably got that about right. Yeah, I choose a me. That's a good choice. Certainly. And then my early tours on uh, my first two submarines, Pennsylvania and Los Angeles, everything went well, you know, lots of recognition, and uh, and as you're walking through all the major events, and then this picture that you're looking at here, actually, I want to share something. That's not a U.S. submarine. That's actually a South Korean diesel submarine, because when the South Korean submarine force was going to be sending one of their boats to Hawaii, they needed some training that... I mean, clearly, I was the only person that gave give them that training. They approached my boss, and he said, Rod, you're coming with me because I need you to give that training. I figured that was about right, right. Well, in all of that, when you think about it, what really was that? That was just simply the way that I saw things, the way that I saw my identity. But about this time, I began to see some of the truths in my life. You know, I might have looked like a hot shot at work, but while I was the same time I was leaving all the heavy lifting at home to Kathy. I mean, well, I was out traveling or maybe playing around a golf during the week. Only now can I truly say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for opening my eyes. Because these were the years that the Lord grabbed Kathy's heart and then grabbed mine as well. Now, I'd be happy to share the rest of my testimony with you sometime. I mean, if you're interested in that, we can sit down over a cup of coffee or some warm beverage on a day like today to be able to do so. But for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into all of those details. But then, so after that point, about two years later, everything's been going really well all the way through. And now it was time that they were going to select those in my year group, my classmates, that were going to go on to be submarine COs. 
And so this selection board met. And, and of course, based on everything in the past, clearly I'd be the first one selected, right? Well, no. That's really, you see, all those earlier years, when we look at them honestly, I was just the lucky guy to be in the right place. The promotions, they really just met that I met the minimum requirements and I hadn't failed. Now, for the first time, the selection boards actually had to choose based on qualifications. And guess where I came out? I was below the cut line. I was not going on. Well, again, praise the Lord, because if he had not by this time extended grace in my life, made me a new creation, given me a new identity, that would have crushed me because I needed the submarine force to affirm my identity. And this is my story. I didn't sing it by then, by the way. But, and I know that my story is unique to me, but it's not unique in the world, is it? Our identity, our sense of who we are in the world is cultivated over time as we seek our significance, as we try to prove that we are somebody. We all do it because then we have to ask ourselves, what happens when our sense of self, our sense that, you know, I am a somebody, runs into that other somebody who just happens to be smarter and better at the things that I'm trying to accomplish. It happens to all of us. Happens to even some of the biggest names. Think about Michael Phelps, Olympic, the most decorated Olympian, not just in swimming, the most decorated Olympian, 28 medals. And yet, even as he's coming through that, he would ask himself, who was I outside the swimming pool? Or Robin Williams. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd certainly look at that man and say, that man was funny. Who can forget Mrs. Doubtfire, right? But after his suicide, his wife revealed that Williams was just a stimulus junkie. And off he, he viewed himself only as good as his last comedic performance. From the day we were born, we're always trying to prove ourselves. We may think it's like climbing a mountain, but I think it's more like George Jetson on a treadmill. Each time that we achieve something, The treadmill speeds up, and it's harder and harder to keep up and achieve that next level. And at any moment, our identity becomes a crisis. But what if our identity did not depend upon you? How quiet and restful would it be if we didn't feel like we needed to achieve the next milestone? How quiet and restful would it be if we didn't have to outdo our last performance and set new world records, or if we didn't find envy and jealousy every time we run up against that somebody who's just better than us. Well, can we find hope in getting off of this crazy thing? Well, to find hope, I want you to turn with me today. We're going to go to two places in God's Word. We're going to go to Acts chapter 19, and I'm going to read sections jumping through And then we're going to go to start our study in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 will be on page 150 if you're using the Bibles that are in the chairs in front of you. Today we're launching, we're launching our new series called Building on Our Heritage. That will be our annual theme. And as Pastor Byers mentioned last week, we've chosen this because of our 60th anniversary for Faith Church. And so throughout the year, 
we will primarily be walking through the book of Ephesians, verse by verse, sometimes even slowing down simply to focus on a single word and concept. Now, we've chosen this series because of the book's theme, because it's all primarily about one thing, the church. John MacArthur describes it this way when he says, Ephesians focuses on the basic doctrine of the church, what it is and how believers function within it. So our heritage, our identity, and building upon that must all be focused upon God's plan for the church. And so to get us started with the study, we're actually, I'm going to begin today by diving into some background and giving us a kind of a deep dive into why this church, why the city of Ephesus was such a big deal and why it was such a big deal that God would build his church right there in Ephesus. Now to give credit where credit's due, this is one of those areas I'm particularly thankful for being part of a preaching team. And Pastor Brent really did a beautiful job in pulling a number of resources together, and I think you'll see that as we go through. As we go through, so Ephesus, just another city in Asia Minor, right? No, not really. The city of Ephesus was a big deal in the first century. When people travel worldwide, we tend to look for those cultural centers where we can go: London, Paris, Tokyo. In the U.S., New York, Los Angeles, well, Ephesus, think of Ephesus like New York City, a center for culture, a hub for finance, a city bustling with arts and sports and entertainment. This was a place where a person could go to make his name, to build an identity for themselves. They had some of the greatest thinkers, and they were a central focus of the religion of the area. And as for influence... Well, Ephesus was placed as a place only second to Rome, and it was a key to the Roman Empire. Located on the western coast of modern Turkey, it's the perfect bridge between the western Roman Empire and the east. But let me me help you with a visual picture. We're going to do a little bit of a flyover with a video here, and we're going to walk our way through. So zooming in. Now, really, we didn't have maps like this when we were on submarines, just to know that. But what I want you to see here is Ephesus is really this gateway between the West, Greece, and Rome, and the East, the Semitic, or the Asiatic lands. And now as we begin to fly down and in, I want you to see the panorama of this area and the beauty and gain the glimpse of what its majesty may have been like. This was a wealthy city. Just think of all the people who would have populated this area as we walk through. And now, this is going to take us right down Main Street. Think about it. They don't have it in this digitization, but you'd have shops and vendors everywhere and people all the way through. And it's all bringing us right to the center of the city and walking into the theater. This theater is expected to have held 25,000 people in the theater. Now, Ephesus is estimated to have been 10 times the theater's capacity. So we're talking about a city of a quarter million people. And as we go through here, we have, uh, you know, an early ross Aid stadium. And so you've clearly got a place where we've got I mean, sports and arts and entertainment going on. But then we're flying out to the edge of the city where we have the seventh wonder of the world. This is the, the local 
a central point for the religious structure, the local economy, the great temple of Artemis. And so now, with that visual in mind, as we fly back out, now we want to fly into what was happening in that city. In that city. I want you to join me as we look at Acts chapter 19. Now, I'm going to be skipping over some verses for the sake of time as we go through, but I want you to consider and hear how the people of Ephesus were responding in all of this. Acts 19, starting at verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper county country and came to Ephesus, and he found some disciples. And then later it says, there were about 12 men, and so Paul entered into the synagogue. Now that was his standard practice. When he would come to a new location, he would go find the synagogue, and he would begin teaching there. And now continuing on in verse 8, it says, And he continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them, that's the Jews, about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, now reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And so here we see that Paul had been teaching the Jews, but when they were no longer willingly receiving the word, he stepped aside and he left the synagogue and he went out to one of the learning centers in the area. So he moved from the Jews now to the Gentiles. That's an important piece. I'm at verse 10 and it says, this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Think about it. How was the word spread throughout the area? It started at this hub of Ephesus. I'm jumping down to verse 18. Many also of those who believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them, and they found it, 50,000 pieces of silver. So we're beginning to see the transformation and the impact of the gospel in the area. At verse 20, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. And at 23, and about that time, now listen to what happened. Now we're talking about the people in Ephesus. Listen to this. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business, the business of the temple of Artemis. And he continues, he says, You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all, as if that really needed to be said. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours will fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. And the temple of Artemis, that it would be dethroned of its magnificence. An ancient Greek poet said of the temple, he says, I've set eyes on the walls of lofty Babylon the statue of Zeus, the hanging gardens, the colossus of the sun, even the high pyramids. But when I saw the house of Artemis, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. 
Talk about a big deal. Ephesus really was a big deal. And then at verse 28, he says, When they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion, and they rushed into one accord into the theater. Now we have a whole mob of people, and they're dragging Paul with them into the theater to accuse him. Why? Because their lives and their identity are being challenged. They're coming in. Now, after some time, finally, it started to quiet down. At verse 35, it says, After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. And then at verse 38, he says, So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and the proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. They're trying to reason their way back to justify who, what their identity is. And he says, Then after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. Now, when we think about how did Paul's preaching of the gospel in Ephesus, threaten the people and their identity. When we consider that, now let's look at how Paul now speaks to the church. So now I want you to jump with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to go right there. Today we're just going to do two verses. Listen to this on how Paul introduces himself and how he greets the church. He says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this short, just simply two-verse introduction to the letter, beautifully loaded with theological significance. These verses set the stage for God's plan for the age. Now, it would be really easy when you pick up the book and we planned our preaching schedule to just blow right by these two verses and say, let's get to the good stuff. Let's get to those next issues of theological significance. But if we did so, we'd have missed the beauty of the revelation of how Paul began this book. Because God has one plan. And it's not to establish a religious center with a great and wondrous temple. It's not even to build the best theological seminary where men could go to make a name for themselves. No, he's calling each of us to himself through the message of the gospel. Calling us into his church. And the church at Ephesus represents a picture of God's plan to work through the nations. Paul's writing to a church filled with Jews and Gentiles. Yes, Jews and Gentiles together. This would have been scandalous in the day. Yet here it is. Where? In Ephesus, one of the most influential cities in the empire. And Paul starts by greeting them and reminding those in the church who they are. Reminding them of their identity. Not an identity that they made for themselves, but a lasting identity for those who are in Christ. And God would build his church here. 
And then from the church in Ephesus, after rocking their worldview, the truth and the knowledge of the one true God would spread throughout the region. Think about it. By the second and third century, all of Asia Minor was a majority Christian part of the world. Now today, the city of Ephesus is gone. But the church of Jesus Christ and the number of people who find their identity in Christ, well, that continues to grow. So today, we're going to launch our annual theme to build the church on our heritage. And so as we do so, as we take a look at how God sees our heritage and sees our identity, we're going to take the first part of our story as remembering your identity as one in Christ. And we're going to do that through the first part of the book of Ephesians. And today, with just these two verses, what do we get to see? We are saints. And from these greetings, we are thus reminded that there are three unchangeable parts of God's plan upon which to build a lasting and stable identity. Now, if you're looking for a lasting and stable identity, we're not just going to build that by running out wherever we want to go. We might not, you wouldn't go over to Speedway to go get your building supplies for your home, would you? So we need to go right to the best place. And that's why the first unchangeable part of God's plan is that there is only one authoritative foundation upon which we are to build. What foundation am I trying to build my life upon? Will it be my training, my accomplishments, my rank as a naval officer? I mean, consider, what did Michael Phelps try to build his life and foundation upon? Swimming? Without the medals, he was nothing. Robin Williams? Without the laughter and the approval of man? Nothing. Paul's pointing us in this short intro to the only authoritative foundation on which we can build our lives and identity. And there are two statements that he uses to show us this authoritative foundation. It first says that he is an apostle. Now, what does that really mean? At major times in the unfolding of God's redemptive plan, God sent human messengers to share his authoritative message. And God gave them confirmation through signs and wonders. And when God revealed his name to his people, he sent Moses, right? Confirming Moses and ultimately proving that he alone is the one true God through the miracles and even the plagues of Egypt. And this continues all throughout Scripture. It's not just a form of trickery. It is God's power. Now, simplifying some things for time, I'm going to jump all the way to the New Testament. But think about the Gospels. Think about the Gospels where Jesus prayerfully selected a small number of men to accompany him, witnessing all that he had said and did. And then, when Jesus was finished with his work on this earth, for this time, he commissioned these men for the authoritative work of the gospel. And he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so through his authority, he gives a command to his disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe All that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, this command still does apply to each and all of us, but that in and of itself does not make us apostles. You see, here at Faith Church, we believe that the death 
of the original apostles, the completion of the work that they were sent to do. After that, there are no more apostles today in the way that God sent the apostles because they carried a unique authority. And we see that throughout the scriptures, particularly in the book of 2 Corinthians. For even if I should boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up. We see the authority that the apostles were given. Or later it says, for this reason I'm writing these things in accordance with what? With the authority which the Lord gave me. Whose authority was it? The apostles were given authority by the Lord. It copies over into 1 Thessalonians. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor did we seek glory from men. They didn't try to establish their identity in any other way, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. They didn't try to prove themselves in any other way. And then... The signs of a true apostle, well, they were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. The true apostles were confirmed by the Lord. And being a sent one was not an identity that they built for themselves. It was authority that came from God. But they were, including Paul, chosen by the will of God. Now, here's my point. There's no other work of man that has the same authority and foundation behind it than what God has done according to his will through the prophets and apostles. And if you want a stable and lasting identity, we build on the heritage of what the apostles built. In comparison, my resume, my identity, my awards, even the picture of my family standing around me, all of that is secondary to an identity in Christ. Looking forward in Ephesians, we're going to study the verse in the second chapter where it says, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on what? The foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so we can confirm this throughout. What foundation am I talking about? If you're reading along in your Bible, I want you to hold it up right now. Lift up the word, okay? Because even if it's on your cell phone, go ahead and lift it up, okay? Here's the truth. The prophets and the apostles recorded the very word of God in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is inspired. That's right. Every word is inspired by God. This is the foundation laid by the apostles and the prophets. Hold it up again. Say it with me. This is the foundation laid by the apostles and the prophets. The more time I spend in the Word, the more that I understand the foundation upon which I am being called to build, the more I see the reliable nature of this foundation. Now, I know I still have much to learn, but I can confidently say that because of this foundation... God changed me. And I've had the opportunity to be able to see God's transformative power through this foundation in their lives. We can look at it and say, Ephesus is in ruins today. (coughs) But the church built on this foundation, it will stand forever. This is the only authoritative foundation upon which we can build our lives and identity. 
And that makes application very simple for us today, right? If you want to build on the foundation, you need to know it. And so I'd go back to the same application that I put in my email on January 1st. Will you commit to adding and being and knowing God's word more this year? If you read the word once a week, bump that up to three. If you read it five times a week, work towards getting to seven. We need to know the word more. And that leads us to our second unchangeable part of God's plan. (coughs) We ask then, what will be built on that foundation? Well, one people of God. One people of God will be built. Now, as I said back in my intro, every one of us is seeking identity. We're all seeking our sense of meaning and purpose in life. For years, I've loved answering the question, what do you do? And my answer, I drive submarines. Why would I say that? Well, because I thought it was kind of a cool way to answer, I mean, at least in my own view. And, but what did it really result in? It meant people might ask questions about submarines, and that meant I get to talk more about me. Well, I want to ask you, did you notice? I can't do that anymore. I'm too old. I'm too slow. I'm too stuck in the past. My identity in submarines could not last. Now, I could try today to live on sea stories and other things like that, but the reality is that you're going to get tired of my sea stories pretty quick. And when that's all said and done, it's all gone. My identity loses all meaning. But Paul is writing to a group that God has established with an identity that will last. Take a look at how Paul describes his people. He describes them as saints, faithful, believers. Now, the term saint here is not meant to be a title like Saint David, Saint Alfonso, but it's a description. It means holy ones, referring to being a set apart by nature, having been set apart by God to become what he has designed us to be. And then when Paul refers to the faithful, he's not speaking of the consistency of our actions, but about our faith in Jesus Christ. Later on in our letter, Paul will show Christ's intention in all of this when he says that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Now, folks, when you hear the word saints, I don't want us to think just about moral perfection. I want us to think about so much more because it's about being holy and set apart And it takes us to something far more precious. It's buried deep within our identity struggles, almost hidden in the way that God sees us. Because look at it. In Exodus 19, God, through the prophet Moses, declares, Now then, if indeed you will obey my voice and keep my commandment, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, but you... Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You see, to God, a holy nation is a special possession amongst all that he owns in creation. And when we think about special possessions, compared to God, what we might call a special possession, well, it simply pales in comparison, doesn't it? But to God, this, this is his crown jewel of treasures, Think about how the British treat their crown jewels. They keep them secured in the most secure vault 
that they could possibly make. And then when the king truly wants to stand out, then and only then does he bring out the crown jewels. Now I want you to stop and look at the person who's sitting next to you. Our heavenly father treasures his saints as the crown jewels of heaven. Your brother or sister in Christ sitting right next to you is a part of the crown jewel treasure of the kingdom. Let me ask you, do you want to be a part of a big deal? Do you want to be part of something permanent? Something that will last? Something considered a treasure? How about being a part of the crown jewels of our heavenly father? Because the crown that his son Jesus Christ, the king of kings, will bring out on display when his kingdom comes, that's what we're talking about. And it won't be about the amazing life and identity that we've built up in a, real, in a role-playing game on the internet. It won't include academic diplomas. It won't even include the medals you might have won in high school. And it certainly won't be based on the title of wherever we work. You who are in Christ, you are the biggest deal. The greatest accomplishment of the only one who truly matters. One people of God are being built through the saints, the holy ones, those who are set apart. But then we also have to recognize we can't think of that and get prideful about it. We have to understand and we have to recognize that this is not happening from the expected places. Because where did Paul find this group? In Ephesus. God didn't look back to his beginnings in Israel to find his people, but rather he's looking and growing his church here in Ephesus. Ephesus, a place where everyone seems to run to want to be the crown jewel of the god Artemis. But God's power is calling his special possession out from the most unlikely place. And so if you want to build an identity that matters to the only one who truly does matter... You and your life have to be built around God's plan, the church that he's building all across, all around the world. And let's be honest, Lafayette, this really is the most unlikely place, isn't it? How about my life, my home, my family? It really is the most unlikely place. And let's be honest with that as well. I'm not so sure I'm all that much of a treasure But then again, it's not about what I think. Do you believe what God says about you? Even when you don't feel like you're very shiny, do you trust that God is actively working to polish his great treasure? I can believe that. Because Philippians 1.6 tells us, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, that's adding you to the treasure. Well, he'll perfect it. That's the continuing polishing that's going on until the day of Christ Jesus. That's the day when the crown jewels will shine brightest. And so how do we display a life and identity that reveals that we are one of God's saints? Well, today, thank you for being here, for recognizing and responding to God's call to be a part of his people, set apart, a holy people, the church, And so I want to encourage you to commit, to commit to being a part of the church faithfully. And so that brings us to application number two, very simply. Members, 
Commit to being here each week, even when the temperatures plummet. And you have. But we need to commit to continuing in that, choosing to serve the body with the gifts that God has granted you. It might be hospitality. And so being a part of our greeting team. It might be through loving the kids in our children's ministry. And there's so many opportunities. And so if you want to seek and turn out to how is God calling you to serve within the body of Christ, come and find one of your pastors and we will help connect you to those opportunities. If you're not a member and you're with us today, choose to attend the Introduction to Faith class that's starting on February 21st to learn more about God's church, to ask any questions you may have about the word, about the church, about what we believe, and then prayerfully consider, is this the place, however unlikely, that God's calling you to be a part of? And now that we've established that there is only one authoritative foundation on which to build a lasting identity, and that there is only one group that God is building upon that foundation, the third unchanging truth that makes it possible for every one of us to be a part of God's plan, folks, this is the great equalizer for each and every one of us because there's only one way to God, and it's grace. In greeting the church, Paul reminds the Ephesians how God brought them into the church and how they continue in it. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. Why is God doing this? Why does he transform his people into a treasure? Why is it that he's making us a big deal? Why is it that he wants his people's name to be made great? Is it because we're amazing? Because we have anything that we bring to the table? Is it simply because we're just so polished and brilliant? I think we all know the answer to that question. No. None of that. In fact, it's the opposite. Because while we were still sinners, unrefined, polarizing, and turning away from him in his love, he sent his son, the only one who truly is a big deal, with a name above all other names in heaven. He sent him in a way that we would never expect. His son took everything about his identity, the son of God, and he humbled himself, setting it all aside and coming to this earth. Isaiah 53 describes, he had no former majesty that we should look upon him or appearance that we should be attracted to him. In fact, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. We did not esteem him. So can we really understand what God did? On earth, Jesus did not come to build up his name. He did not come to earth to establish his identity. He didn't set himself up to be the big deal, just the opposite. He came as one with no reputation. Nothing good could come from Nazareth. And then he didn't seek. He didn't seek out those who were the big deal. He didn't seek to be, be a part of them or even try to outdo them. Instead, he chose to do what the rulers and the leaders would despise. He chose to associate with sinners. He chose to seek out those who were unclean. His reputation was that he associated with the disreputable. 
And we see that even in his death, a death on the cross, surrounded by criminals, he was numbered and named with the transgressors. That was the identity he came and took for himself. And there it is. Grace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of grace, because of God's abundant grace and love for his people, God knew there was no other way. There was no other way that his people could be redeemed and reconciled to the Father. The cost for their sin, the penalty for their transgression was more than any one of us could ever pay. And left as it was, there really was only one result. God's creation, those whom he made in his image, would have to be condemned and pay the debt that they owed. In God's holiness and perfect justice, the debt has to be paid. And there's only one who could do so. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We're talking about treasures. God gave his greatest treasure for us so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's plan since before creation was to pour out his grace and there was no other way. He poured out his grace upon his people that we might become his treasured possession. Christ's life for mine. Christ's identity for mine. God's grace poured out upon the undeserving so that one day when God's most precious possession, his son, shines for all of eternity, it might be made even more the glorious because of the work that he has done in increasing his treasure. Because by building his church and building his people, redeeming them through grace alone, so that one day we might be named and identified as being in Christ, folks, don't miss that. Jesus was named as one of us humbling himself to take the identity that we deserve. Though he had not sinned, he became sin on our behalf to be named a transgressor. Trusting now, we can trust that through his death, burial, and resurrection, and he trusted that his father would exalt him with the name above all other names. That's Christ's lasting and eternal identity. And he wants to share it with us. So the question for you and me, do you want to build your own identity? Or through grace, will you receive the identity of being in Christ? If you're here today in your identity, you're seeking to build your identity on your works, on what you can do, on who you're trying to be, I'd simply ask, how's that going for you? Because the reason that we're never satisfied is because we're looking in all the wrong places. We cannot do it on our own. And so I ask, will you choose today to receive God's grace? Now, if you have questions, we would love to talk to you about those questions. Or if God's put it upon your heart that today is the day that he says, come. And you're going to receive his grace becoming a child of God, part of his treasured possession. Don't keep it to yourself. Come and talk to one of us. 
let's talk and pray over God's amazing grace welcoming, welcoming you into the church. And for the believers in the room, having already received His grace, we have to also remember that we can't choose to set ourselves above because of what He's done. But we must humble ourselves and love others, loving the rebels and the sinners. Why? So that they too might be drawn to become of God, part of God's special possession. And so I ask, how will you choose to be more like Christ so that others might see his grace in you? So as we get ready to close, I simply want to thank God for all that he has shown us today. Remember, you are saints. And if we're a part of his unchangeable plan, we live based on his unchanging and authoritative foundation in his word. And we are choosing to be a part of God's people, the church that he is building upon that foundation. And then we live humbly knowing that we're not here based on our own identity or achievements, but only through the beautiful grace of our holy God. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you today. Lord, just praising you and giving thanks. Lord, as you've revealed to us, In your word, the wonder and the beauty of being in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that that truth, the foundation of your word, being a part of your church, Lord, knowing that we are where we are simply through your grace, Lord, may it just penetrate our hearts. Lord, changing us for tomorrow. Lord, growing us. Lord, that we might draw others into your kingdom. Lord, increasing your treasure, that it might shine all the more brightly, Lord, as you've promised, when you will come again. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.